Well, like I said, it's a pleasure to be here this morning. A beautiful drive in from uh, Gibbons, Alberta. And uh, a lot of you might not know this, but uh, there was a short time in my life when I was a member of this congregation. Back in... uh, um, (laughs) A long, long time ago. 1973. I was here for a few months. I was working at a gas plant down the road and uh, lived with one of the congregation's families, old Mrs. Vanderveen, who I believe is... She's still with us, right? She did? Oh, okay. Well, I, I certainly enjoyed her hospitality and, uh, and getting to know her while, uh, while I lived there. And then I fell in love with the Lacombe girl, and she whisked me off with her to Edmonton. And uh, we got married. We're still married. So that worked out. <laughs> now, um, I'm going to make a confession this morning. Is, is Wayne Bauman here? No. Well, for heaven's sake. He's the guy that invited me to come and preach here this morning. And he gave me pretty specific instructions. A few months ago, um, I was traveling through central Alberta with Peter Boltheis of, the, uh, or, of World Renew. And... Um, we were doing a, an evening service at Woody Nook Church, uh, a youth service, so I think some of the young people from Bethel uh, probably were there also. And I did not know it at the time, but I was expected to preach. I thought that Peter Boltice was going to just speak. Uh, but they said, no, 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 you have to preach. So I, I preached something, sort of on the spur of the moment, and uh, Wayne thought that that message was good enough that it should be preached again here in Bethel. Uh, so, but I did not have a manuscript for that sermon, so I'm kind of going by memory, and, uh, uh, and uh, I'm calling it a $3 God, which really fits in with the theme of the children's message this morning as well, although a little bit of a different take on it. And um, I'm going to be reading from uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, uh, but I want to set that reading up first for a moment. And I, I'd like to set it up by reminding, well, not reminding you, I'm reminding myself, really, of a poem that I read many, many years ago uh, when I first became, uh, you know, I went back to school quite a bit later after we were married and uh, had a few kids and so on, and King's University opened its doors, and I was working for an engineering firm across the road, and I decided that I would go back to school um, just to see what higher education was all about, and I never really figured out a good reason to stop, so I'm still there. And, uh, but during that time, I came across a little book uh, that was called, When I Relax, I Feel Guilty. I don't know if you can relate to that at all, hard-working community. When I Relax, I Feel Guilty, by a guy named Tim Hansel. And I don't remember much about that book anymore, but except for a small poem uh, that, uh, that's in that book. It's a poem by uh, a poet named Wilbur Reese, and it goes like this. I'll read it to you first, and then I'll give you a bit of uh, my own elaborated version of it. But he begins his poem like this. He says, I would like three dollars worth of God, please. Think about that for a moment. I would like three dollars worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough of God to equal a warm cup of milk 
or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or to want to pick beets with a migrant worker because I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, but not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like three dollars worth of God, please. That's kind of interesting. Maybe you can understand why I've never really forgotten that poem. It kind of got a hold of my consciousness and has never really let go of this idea that when it comes to God and when it comes to the abundant and fruitful life that God promises, that maybe I and you, we settle too soon and settle for too little of God. Three dollars worth of God. What would that look like to you? What does that make you think of? I know you're not used to speaking in church, but you have my permission. What does that make you think of? Three dollars worth of God. What kind of a God is that? Hmm? A tiny God. Yeah. Maybe. Just a fraction of a God. Yeah. What else? What kind of a, what kind of a spiritual walk would that be? Cheap? Okay, cheap. I think I heard you. I, I forgot my hearing aid, so I may, may be misunderstanding everything. But Anybody else? Pretty shallow. Very shallow. Anything else? No effort required. You might have been there that Sunday night because I think I got an answer very similar to that, which is right on, no effort required. A warm cup of milk, a snooze in the sunshine, no, no demands made on my life. Never having to become uncomfortable. A God on demand, a God who delivers without requiring much of us. I want to fatten that idea up a little bit and, and elaborate on that poem a wee little bit. You know, uh, he refers to, uh, you know, I never want to have to love a black man or pick beats with a migrant worker. So clearly, uh, Wilbur Reese was writing in a time when civil rights were in their ascent in the U.S. Uh, but, uh, you know, this, those circumstances haven't changed so much, but our context is a bit different. He might, have made some, he might have meant something like this. I want enough of God to know that I am loved, and I am forgiven, and I am accepted, and I belong. But I don't want so much of God to know that I also need to love my enemy. That my enemy also must be accepted. That that person who is so different from me, whose religious beliefs are different from my own, the one who the media says is such a threat to my well-being, I don't want so much of God to know that I need to accept that person. And I want enough of God to know that I am forgiven, that all the things that I've done and the thoughts that I think and the words that I speak, I want enough of God to know that all of that is, is wiped away. I am clean before God. But I don't want so much of God to know that I must forgive the one who has harmed me, the one who has offended me, 
the one who has sullied my reputation. I want enough of God to know that God heals all my diseases, but not so much of God that I should embrace a leper or love that person with AIDS. Not so much of God that I would go to a homeless person and offer to buy them a meal. I want a God who makes no demands. I want a God small enough to fit into a chapel service at the beginning of a week, but not such a big God that he transforms the whole curriculum and challenges me to think about the world in brand new ways, in new and radical ways that can transform things. I want enough of God so that I can get together with people in my congregation on a Sunday morning and get a fuzzy feeling inside, maybe, maybe at a YC convention. That makes me feel good, that gives me a spiritual high, but not so much of God that it challenges my assumptions, challenges my fundamental orientation in the world, and calls me out of my self-preoccupations and challenges me to a deeper life of discipleship. Now, how many of you think that you can actually get $3 worth of God? You think little pieces of God are available? I think there are lots of people who try to distribute $3 pieces of God. But whatever they're selling, it isn't God. God is indivisible. God doesn't parcel out in small fractions. God does not arrive in the world in small quantities. If you have hold of the one true God, or better yet, if that one true God has hold of you, if it is the true God that has hold of you and you have hold of him, well, this is the God who created heaven and earth. This is the God who says, all things belong to me. This is the God who says, I'm making all things new. This is the God of whom Solomon in the scripture says, heaven and earth cannot contain you. This is the God who sits in heaven and sees the whole of humanity and history. The one who is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the all in all. If you have hold of something spiritual that is not that, well, it's not God that you have hold of. If you've been getting by on $3 worth of God, a little devotional thought from time to time, enough to make you feel welcomed and warmed and loved, but, but that still allows you to diss your friends on, say, Facebook, or say things that are unkind, or to live in the world in an irresponsible way, or to participate in sexist language and racist language. Whatever you have hold of, it isn't God. It's something else. God is indivisible. God does not give himself out in small quantities. But God gives himself wholly in extravagant ways. Which is why I want to read with you these words from Paul's letter to the Ephesian church in uh, Ephesians chapter 3. I'll begin reading at verse 14. And just listen to the contrast between uh, Wilbur Reese's poem about $3 worth of God and what Paul says. Paul says this. He's just finished uh, explaining... Uh, the, the, what the gospel is, is all about, right? God's eternal purpose which is accomplished in Christ. And then he says in verse 14, For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom God's whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. 
And I pray that out of God's glorious riches, that God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp, listen to this now, these four dimensions, to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. I mean, we're not talking about $3 worth of God here. Not even $300 worth of God. I mean, Paul is saying, I want you to know the extravagant dimensions of God's being and of God's glory and of God's grace. Why? So that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. If you were to read this text in the Greek, there's a, there's a word that the Apostle Paul uses, it's pleroma, which means fullness, fully. And he uses it multiple times in this text. If, if this was to be translated literally, it would read something like, so that you may be fully filled with all the fully filling fullness of God. Right? Like Paul, just he, he can't get enough words out to try and, and express the, the immeasurable uh, grandeur and the grace and the goodness and the majesty of this God. Three dollars worth of God is the farthest thing from the Apostle Paul's mind. His prayer is that the people of Ephesus and by inference the people of Bethel Lacombe and of Gibbons, Alberta, that the people of God will never be satisfied with too little of God, but will always crave a deeper, fuller experience of the fullness of God, that God may overwhelm us, that we may always have a sense of the grandeur and the majesty of God and the claims of God on human history and on the creation. Paul is not saying, I hope you can have a little religious experience from time to time that will keep you topped up, but I want you to be flooded, overwhelmed. I want you to be saturated with the grace and the goodness of God. That's not an unfamiliar theme for the apostle. You know, in Colossians 1, Paul uses that word pleroma again. And he says, you know, God was in Christ reconciling all things, all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth and above the heavens and, and all powers and principalities and rulers and authorities. All things are being reconciled. Not just you and your little soul, not just your family, not just the little community, but everything, the whole world. In fact, the whole cosmos is going to be made new and is being reconciled. I want you to be so saturated with the gospel so that you may never have a waking moment, that you may never have a thinking thought that is not somehow lived in the presence of this God who is saving the whole world. And I want your whole life to be shaped by that. The decisions that you make, the way that you spend your money, the kinds of relationships that you form, the way that you will spend your time, the kinds of careers that you will pursue. Let that all be informed by this fully absorbing knowledge of the one true God. Now, why am I telling you that on a Sunday morning? Well, I, I guess there are a few reasons. One of them, for sure, is uh, that... I, I honestly believe Jesus meant it when he said, 
I have come that you may have life in all of its abundance. That God has come to make all things new, all things in my life and in your life, and, 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 uh, and if that's lacking in your life, if there's something about your relationship with God that leaves you hungry and thirsty, then know that God is saying, there's more. There's more, and it's available to you. My other motivation is this. In the last 10 minutes while I've been speaking, 150 children, many of them in sub-Saharan Africa, under the age of five, have died because they did not have enough food to eat. They certainly didn't have enough of the right kind of food to eat. Every minute, about 15 children die of completely preventable causes. Something as simple as diarrhea is the most common killer of children in the world, and it happens because of a lack of access to good, clean, potable water. In the last 10 minutes, about 150 acres of rainforest have disappeared from the Amazon basin. In a very real way, these are called the lungs of the world, these trees that that absorb uh, CO2 and emit oxygen. In a real way, we could say that the earth is developing lung cancer. Somewhere in Mexico, where I took a group of students this past February, or perhaps in Honduras, uh, we just returned from three weeks in a community there. And we heard the stories where this takes place with great uh, frequency. Some young person sat down with his family, perhaps, and calculated the odds of making it across the border into the United States. Willing or not willing, should we or should we not, spend the family's life savings, give it to some human trafficker, some smuggler of bodies, in the vain hope that I might get into the United States or perhaps Canada in a country other than my own where there's no work for me so that I can have a better life. A woman gets assaulted every five minutes in the United States. I can't even begin to tell you how many refugees are risking their lives on boats floundering perilously on the Mediterranean or who are spending hours standing in long lines in a refugee camp waiting to get a bowl of food or trying desperately to connect with a family somewhere for the umpteenth time to connect with someone to beg for help. Come and help us. We could go on. You can think of your own measure of terror in the world. This week we were reminded again of the nature of hostilities that exist in the world. The indifference of those who demand their own way to the well-being of vulnerable populations, soft targets, children. All of which is to say that the world we live in today is incredibly broken. It is deeply damaged. It is populated by people who suffer, who are hurt, who are rejected, dejected, who for one reason or another feel like they they don't belong, they they can't participate in ordinary human life. And they may be overseas, they may be in a refugee camp, or they may be in a boat somewhere, or they may be in the global south. They might be right here in church. They might be next to you in the shop, next to you in the classroom. They might even be sitting beside you in church this morning. It's a broken world, and the brokenness is deep and wide. 
And the question that puts before us then is to ask, well, what does the world need then from the people of God? What does the world, what kind of people does such a broken world need? Will such a world be set to rights, made whole again by people who are satisfied with a $3 dose of religious experience? Of course not. We know the answer to that. To ask it is to answer it. Of course not. The people of God in the world who are satisfied with little religious experiences won't make a difference in the life of the world. What the world needs are people who are consumed by the love of a God who himself loved the world so much that he gave his only son to set the world to rights again. The world needs people who are deeply committed to someone who said, Behold, I am making all things new. I am reconciling all things. And not just that, but about whom the Apostle Paul said, You are agents of reconciliation, because from now on, you who have been made new in Christ, you no longer see the world from an ordinary point of view, but you see things as they are in Christ. So you are the agents of reconciliation. In a world where wars are still being fought over grievances that are centuries old, the world needs a people who believe in the power of forgiveness, who are followers of the one who said, you are not done until you have forgiven 70 times, seven times. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's not your job, says God. Your task is to love your enemy as much as you love yourself. In a world where poverty is rampant so that many children die young, where maternal health care is denied the majority of women in the global south, whole populations suffer the indignities of poverty for a variety of reasons. The world needs a people who have cast their lot with a God who has established the jubilee principle of the forgiveness of debts about the breaking of poverty traps so that no child will be left behind, so that poverty traps are sprung loose, so that we are characterized not just by compassion, but by justice. In a world of extravagant inequality, where the ratio of rich to poor is 80 to 1, where a half a dozen people own as much as the rest of the world's population, that world needs a church that follows the rule of Acts 1, where people held all things in common, looked out for each other, carried one another's burdens. And where the creation is exploited, where every river, lake, forest, plant, and animal is turned into a dollar bill, the creation needs people who know that the earth and all its fullness belongs to the Lord, who can hear what Romans 8 describes as the groaning of creation waiting for its deliverance. People who remember that when God created Adam and Eve, he said, take good care of this garden because it's the only one you're going to get. In a world of refugees, we need churches that will practice radical hospitality, not wall building or border closing. In a world of violence and terror, we need Christians who have heard Jesus say, blessed are the peacemakers. In a world of alternate facts and false news exacerbated by social media, the world needs a church that believes that the truth will set you free. 
$3 worth of God? And the people of God all said, no thanks, no thanks. But a God whose intention is to fully fill us with the fullness of God's goodness and grace, yes, please. I'd like to tell you a story. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was in Haiti, very poor country, probably the poorest country in, the southern hemis- in, the, in this part of the world, in the southern hemisphere in the west, Uh, famous because of the earthquake that happened there a few years ago. I was invited to be present to lead a retreat for World Renew and its partners. And uh, the night before we were to leave for the retreat center, we got together with uh, World Renew staff who were there, Leanne and uh, Leanne Geistefer and her husband Casper and some of the staff, along with a group of friends that they had from the international church. And uh, we were having a Bible study and at the conclusion of that, we wanted to pray for one another and for everybody in the circle. I happened to be sitting beside a Dutch couple who were living and working in Haiti. And he, he was making his living there by, get this, building coffins. And business was booming because of the high incidence of AIDS, but also because of the many murders in the capital, Port-au-Prince, and because of the, uh, the violence in that country generally. And they had a prayer request that we pray for the protection of their children. They were worried about their kids, you know, tall, blonde Dutch kids. They would stand out in a country like Haiti, and they were worried that these kids might get kidnapped. And they were right to fear that because almost every day there were three or four kidnappings. These kidnappings were happening because a political, uh, sort of a a revolutionary group uh, was trying to earn, earn, earn is, I use the term loosely, was trying to raise money so they could arm themselves in an effort to overthrow the government, which was corrupt and probably should have been overthrown. Nevertheless, we were praying for these children, and we prayed that they would be protected. And uh, the next morning we got up, and we were going to go to the retreat, and the phone rang, and guess what? Their son had been kidnapped. And a ransom was set at something like a million dollars, and everybody was in shock, and stunned by this news. Uh, But we decided to go on the retreat anyway. Uh, This family was not part of that group, so they were staying behind. And In any case, uh, the family in a circumstance like that is taken right out of the equation, and the government puts in place professional negotiators. And so we left, but we were, of course, very deeply disturbed and troubled and uh, feeling the anxiety of this family. So when we got out to the retreat center, there there was a valley with a beautiful creek running through it, And we set up a little altar with rocks, and we placed a Bible there and a journal, and we set up uh, basically a 24-7 prayer group. So so every hour of the day while we were away, somebody was down there interceding for this family. Well, Monday came and went, no news. Tuesday came and went, no news. Our 24-hour vigil continued, making our needs known before God. And then on Friday, the last day of the retreat, just before we were to leave, we got word that this boy had been released. We have no idea how that happened, but, uh, but we believed that God had answered our prayers and the prayers of others around the world who were probably praying for him. And so, of course, we got together at the rock where we had been praying, and we had a service of celebration and thanks, and we sang songs, and we, we said thank you. And then Leanne Geistefer. She's the World Renew team leader for Latin America. She said, I am overcome with joy, but I know now 
that we've been praying only for $3 worth of God. Because it's not just this boy who needs release from captivity. Not just his family that needs to be released from fear. But the whole country lives in the bondage of fear. The whole country lives being held captive to political orders that do not serve their interests. And even captive to international uh, intrigues that keep the people uh, under politically sanctioned violence. The whole country lives under the oppression of poverty. We've been praying so intensely and so fervently for this boy, and we should have, and we can see that God does answer prayer, but we should have been praying for the whole country to make Haiti new again. To change the belief systems in this country where it still practices so much voodoo. To change, to change the, the whole the scene of people. And I was blown away by what she said because I had shared that devotion earlier in the week. And I was, I was, I was really impressed by this radical application of this lesson of the $3 God. To be so fully filled with the vision and the wisdom of God to be able to see beyond this boy and to see a whole world standing in that kind of need. And of course, it's an invitation to go deeper. Yes, pray for the boy. Pray for the person next to you. But go deeper and ask questions that the Bible calls questions of justice. Ask why. Why did the boy get kidnapped? Why do those people need that money? Why is there such political turmoil and revolution? What's going on? When somebody gets arrested, ask what's happening in this person's life? What's going on in the world around him that makes these things happen? Catholic priest once said, when I gave the poor something to eat, they called me a saint. But when I asked why they were hungry, they called me a communist. It's an invitation to go deeper. Don't settle too soon. God is a God of justice. God is a God who has intentions to make all things new. So I want to take a note from uh, the children's story this morning. I know that we talked about making God big and, and seeing the bigness of God in something like the establishment of a school in the Dominican Republic. Right? Somebody went to the Dominican Republic, and maybe they worked with uh, worldwide Christian schools, and they built a school. That's a great thing. But I want to tell you a story about the Association for a More Just Society, which is a group in Honduras... It's a, it's, it's, it's a long story. I won't tell you everything about it, but uh, there's a guy in Honduras. His name is Kurt Verbeek. And Kurt used to work for World Renew. Then uh, he went and got his uh, PhD and began teaching a course in Honduras. And, uh, and it's, it's a, he's a sociologist, and he teaches this course, and students from Calvin come there, and, and uh, so they've got this program. Well, because of the violence that was taking place in Honduras, Kurt and a couple of his friends began to investigate the incidents of violence and discovered that there was absolute corruption in the police force. Most crimes that were reported uh, would never find their way to court. The police were corrupted, the judges were corrupt, the lawyers were corrupt. And so they began something called the Association for a More Just Society. And they tried to find a couple of policemen, a couple of lawyers, and a reporter who were clean so they could begin to break open this, 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 uh, this, systemic, uh, this system of systemic corruption. Well, they've been highly successful, and uh, you can find their website. It's AJS. Uh, we're starting a Canadian chapter of AJS. 
And what Kurt and his partners are really all about is about digging down deeper. So Kurt tells a story about a group that came to Haiti and they built a school in Honduras. I mean, in Honduras. And Kurt says, but we discovered that, uh, that why, why is the public school system not working? When they examined it more closely, they realized that half of the teachers on the payroll never showed up for work. Many of them were in two schools, getting paid for, for two schools, but only ever attending one. Nobody wants to work in the countryside, so they all teach in the capital city. And so there was massive corruption in the education program. Students were supposed to receive 200 days of education in a year. They were receiving less than 100. Honduras ranked last in terms of the quality of education uh, in, all of, uh, in all of Central America. So Kurt and AJS now is a group of uh, maybe 100 lawyers and a couple hundred researchers, and uh, they began to approach the, the education system with the mindset, they said, okay, it's good that people from North America come and build a school for 100 kids, but there are 100,000 ki- kids in Honduras that don't have a school. We can't build schools for all of them, so let's fix the system that is broken. And so they began doing that, and a consequence of their work is that some of the people in the highest levels of the Department of Education have been dismissed and have been fired, and there's been a wholesale clean-out of the place, and now they've got like 95% of, of teachers are bona fide and are, are licensed, are registered, are being monitored. Students are now getting well over 200 days of school every year. So Kurt and his group of people at AJS, they, they went deeper. They weren't satisfied with just building a school from time to time. They wanted to address the macro situation and change the system and the structure. And I believe that that's kind of a consequence of not being satisfied with $3 worth of God, but always saying, "What? there's more there. I know there's more. You know, Jesus said in the Beatitudes that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, literally who hunger and thirst for justice. He never said blessed are those who are satisfied with how much justice there is in the world. He said blessed are those who hunger and thirst for more. And we are never to settle too soon. And so I want to wrap it up with that question and just leave it with you to ask of yourself and to ask it of your own, uh, of your own congregation, your own walk with God. Are you settling too soon? C.S. Lewis once said, We are like children who are content to play in little mud puddles when what's really being offered us is a day at the beach. Are you settling too soon? Are you reconciled to this world as it is, being as good as it's going to get? Or do you have an appetite for the world as it might yet become? Because God is making all things new. Open your heart so that God may fill it fully, so that you may have a vision of a world made new. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe we're going to sing a song.